1: Welcome to New Books in World Affairs and this is your host Christian Peterson. And today I have the good fortune of speaking with William C. Wolforth about his new book America Abroad: The United States' Global Role in the 21st Century, which is put out by Oxford University Press and is co- Welcome to New Books in World Affairs, and this is your host, Christian Peterson. And today I have the good fortune of speaking with William C. Wolforth about his new book, America Abroad, the United States Global Role in the 21st Century, which is put out by Oxford University Press and is co-written with Stephen G. Brooks. William, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to join you. And before we begin, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit about your background.
0: Well, I'm a a professor of government here at Dartmouth College and I've been here for over 15 years teaching and doing research in international relations. Before coming here, I taught at Georgetown and before that at Princeton Uh, and uh, got my Ph.D. at Yale University. And I uh, have had a kind of a a, a career that uh, bridges uh, scholarship and teaching and also some some policy work with, uh, you know, interaction with various um, uh, foreign policy research institutes.
1: That's interesting. I did my my undergrad at Yale University. I graduated in 99. Were was there any overlap? Uh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> it was you well, got, well before you, that. I got my doctorate 10 years before you got your BA. Your oh, in the late 80s. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, as far as uh, for for our listeners, I was wondering if you could give a little more detail on why you wrote the book with Stephen. We uh, we, we took on this book because
0: we just think that uh, a lot of people in you know the public at large and the uh, the foreign policy establishment uh, commentariat, if you will, have just uh, we're starting to just understand the United States' role in the world. Wrong. Uh, In particular, you know, the book answers two basic questions. One is, is the United States capable of continuing to be and perform this role as the world's only superpower? I mean, does it have the basic wellsprings? Does it have the capacity to continue to act the way it has in international politics, that is to say very actively uh, uh, going forward? And the second big question was whether if it has this capacity, and we think it does, whether it should continue to pursue this relatively actively uh, engaged uh, grand strategy that's really been pursuing since the end of the Second World War. On um, both of those questions, the elite conversation, but also the public conversation, was moving in the opposite direction. Polls are showing that many Americans were seeing China as the number one country in the world. Um Polls were showing Americans also increasingly dis, uh, dis, uh, di- disenchanted with the United States' global role and with its sort of forward-leaning foreign policy. And that public mood was being reflected in kind of elite uh, a- analytical uh, co- uh, category as well. And then in the uh, – although this began to develop after we, we, we have, were finishing up the book, uh, in the, in, the, in, in politics and in this election campaign, you've seen strong evidence at both the elite and popular level of, uh, of people sort of going, at, uh, the, t- t- seeing, uh, the, uh, seeing the, the United States, uh, global role and completely, uh, opposite to, to, to where we see it. And so we decided to, to write this book to sort of see where the best scholarship comes down on these two questions.
1: Yeah, you're right about the rhetoric. Uh, I even notice it with the students that I teach here at our university, Ferris State University in Western Michigan. There's a lot of talk about how China's taking over the world and the U.S. needs to back up and basically let the world figure out for itself how it's going to defend itself and get back to giving Americans jobs and and things like this. So I think you, you've you hit the nail right on the head with the, with the larger discourse. And just for our, our listeners, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit more about what grand strategy, what you mean by that term, and what you've seen as the consistent U.S. grand strategy, even in diverse administrations from Nixon to Carter to Reagan to Clinton to Bush.
0: Yeah, there's been a lot of twists and turns, and um, the um, uh, but there's been a constant core going all the way forward since Really the very, very origins of the Cold War in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And that basic core is this idea that the United States best serves its own interests as well as incidentally the interests of many other parts of the world by uh, actively being forward engaged and supporting security alliances around the world in support of three big objectives that have remained more or less constant. One is to basically manage uh, security affairs in key regions so that the insecurity of those regions don't come blowing back and hitting us here in the United States. Uh, The second is to sort of be a a leader in organizing cooperation to handle issues uh, through international institutions that we can't deal with on our own. A lot of big issues that we care about just can't be handled by the United States alone. At first, this was just the global economy, but later it became other issues like environment and global warming. Um, and the third issue is just to, inconsistent with that second one. The third big aim is to is to use this leadership role to work to keep the global economy humming so we don't have another sort of episode like the 1930s, which, again, showed how global economic downturns and recessions can blow back and hurt the United States, both in its economic interest and its security interests. So the whole idea is that the world just works better in general and for the United States if we are relatively uh, forward engaged in key regions, the most important of those regions really being Europe and East Asia. So that, if you look at the, the all the twists and turns, the debate, should we do that, should we do that, should we intervene here, should we intervene there, that has been a kind of a constant core since around 1949, 1950.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very interesting way, way you pose it at the beginning of the book. And another thing I like about the beginning, and I like about this book in general, is that it deals with a lot of the debates about what about what power is and how power is used and how people look at the the issue of power. And one of the points that you 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 nail, or both you nail, at the beginning of the book is this idea that power is more, it's, it's it's just as much about preventing, uh, for lack of a better word, unfortunate outcomes or preventing worse things. Power isn't just about you know compelling people to do things, but it's preventing scenarios that work against your interests. And before we get going, I was wondering you could say more about that idea that power isn't just basically getting people to do what you want, but preventing worse uh, outcomes.
0: Yeah. Anytime you do anything, if you're uh, trying to Uh, uh, pursue some strategy in your life or in your business or in as a a country in a way you're intervening in the world to try to to try to make it more the way you want and that can also be intervening doing something to prevent it from becoming worse Um, and uh, one way you can think about our book is it's kind of an answer to the question that at least in part was raised by Donald Trump's presidential a uh, campaign and actually more strongly in the in the primary campaign which is what would in fact happen if the United States stopped doing a lot of this stuff what would happen if we just said we weren't going to anymore be interested in defending our NATO allies or we insisted that they pay a high price for it we just came home and basically said unless you can prove to me that in dollar terms we're making money on this relationship we're just going to cut back The big question is sort of what would happen if we did that, if we really pulled back, we stopped messing around with all of these problems. And our book, in a way, is trying to probe the best scholarship to answer that question. And the answer that we come at, and really having killed ourselves over years to try to get this this answer, (laughs) is that it really, really would be a lot worse. It would be poorer. It would be more insecure. It would be absent the kind of cooperation we need to deal with, with crucial problems that affect Americans of all walks of life. So the bottom line is you run that counterfactual of a U.S. that's pulling back, and the world just gets more dangerous for the United States. It gets poorer and is uh, is facing a deficit in the, in the kinds of solutions that we need to handle global problems. So all that happens. So in a sense, if you want to ask how powerful the United States is, the best way of measuring that is to ask. What's the difference between the world today when the United States is exercising its power and the way the world would be if the United States didn't? And that difference is huge, as best as we can figure it out, which means that those who say the United States is somehow powerless, somehow it's incapable of, of altering things or getting what it wants, are really, really missing a huge part of the story. They're seeing the tip of the iceberg. They're missing the 90 percent that's underneath the surface, that's actually working in favor of uh, Americans' interests.
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting point. And it is an assumption of a lot of the retrenchment arguments that things would somehow be better. And there's not, I mean, you can certainly debate the merits of it. You can read in all these leading journals, foreign affairs to others, the arguments that are made. But there is a lot of, I I don't know what to call it, other than maybe seeing the glass half full type, type of analysis with not a lot of empirical evidence. But what you've just said raises the issue of what, I mean at the beginning of your book, you talk about the United States' position in the world and really take on the argument that the United States is a declining power. And I was wondering if you would say a little bit more about that.
0: Well, it's, it's, a, it's a slightly uh, a revised uh, version of what you just said in that we, we, we definitely, decisively, thoroughly and I hope entertainingly but who knows – We take on the issue of whether the United States can continue to be a super a global superpower is in particular the rise of China, but also such things as the increasingly assertive and militarily capable Russia. Are these are these more assertive powers uh, uh, and more capable powers just rendering it impossible or it's just prohibitively expensive? for The United States to continue to do this grand strategy, continue to be. A power that controls or commands the global commons that is capable of sustaining and, and, and nurturing these alliances all around the world. Um, and our answer to that question is uh, no. That the, the change of these, uh, the change, the rise of China, and, and and the other changes that we see in the international system are simply are important. They're serious. They're real. We have to look at them. They do cause us to concentrate, and 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 it should cause us to rethink certain. Policies, but they don't add up to the end of the United States' 75-year-old old as The world uh, as a global superpower, and uh, but the, way, the reason I said there's a little nuance to your question is that that does not mean that nothing has changed, or that we're still in the same mm-hmm. world we were in the 1990s. That we should still think of the United States as being able to interpe- intervene with impunity almost anywhere. There's no question that we're in a more competitive global environment. There's no question mm-hmm. that China. Its increased military and economic capabilities are creating new challenges for the United States and its allies in East Asia. There's no doubt that Russia is just not that supine sort of chaotic power that it was in the 1990s. And love or hate Vladimir Putin, the state of Russia is just more capable than it was in the 1990s. And for those reasons, we have to focus on these things. We have to concentrate on the, on the essence of our, our strategy. We have to stop frittering away resources on non-essential uh, tasks. But none of those changes I mentioned mean that there's another global superpower out there that's going to take the United States role or even that Russia, China et al. are strong enough to prevent the United States from continuing to perform this kind of role that's been playing all these years.
1: Yeah, I was very interested in your analysis of the problems of using the term unipolar world um, and how it's kind of a very It's not a very precise instrument to look at changes in the international environment. Like you compare the 1995 people were saying was a unipolar world, unipolar world, excuse me, to today. That term is still, you know, people, scholars have tried to come around with something, but it's not a very good way to look at the changes and give uh, the United States grounding in its strategy to use the term unipolar. I was wondering could say a bit more about that.
0: Yes, it's a very popular term, and I have to, in full disclosure, say that I use the term and develop <laughs> arguments about unipolarity that I still think are right. Uh, that I developed in the 1990s. But over time, it came, to, it, to, to, uh, it came it became clear to me and, 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 my, and my co-author and colleague Steve Brooks that the term was kind of getting in the way of a debate over how much the world is changing because the, the, basically the problem with unipolarity is one of these categories. It's either you are or you aren't. It's dichotomous. Either it's unipolar or it's not. And you have this big debate going, is the world still unipolar or is it completely, totally different? And so that leads to kind of a, a, frankly, a polarized argument between everything is – people who claim, look, everything is changing. We're basically back in the world the way it was. The United States is is just no longer capable of being a superpower versus those who say, no, nothing has changed. We're in the exact same situation. It's still unipolar. And that just misses the kinds of changes that I was just referring to a second ago. We clearly Hmm. are not in the 1990s anymore. There's no question about it. The fact that China is capable of, uh, of, of presenting challenges for U.S. strategy in that region that are totally different than the 1990s, and, and the same goes for Russia and other countries. Power has diffused; capabilities have diffused in comparison to the 1990s. Um, but but the the United States' status as the only superpower is, is 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 in fact unchanged. It's so we got change, but we also have continuity. And the polarity concept, especially this term unipolarity, just is not very good at capturing that aspect of it.
1: Yeah, I think it's a very important uh, section of your book to read uh, for anyone interested in history and looking at the international environment. And another effective part of this book is the way that you raise fundamental questions about the Chinese position in the world, whether it's you know, it's to some degree the limitations of its economic power and military power, but you you devote a lot of attention to why China may not be as powerful as some people think as it tries to make that transition to a superpower. And I was wondering you could say a little bit more about China's place in the world today. Yeah, I'd
0: say that any listeners to this podcast who are really interested in this debate about the rise of China, um, uh, you know, would, I think, get... Some intellectual profit about a reading uh, uh, from reading those chapters of our book where we do dive into pretty deep detail and uh, get into the, the, the deep in the numbers and the, the best available data and trying to track where China is now vis-a-vis the United States and where it's going, how long it might take for the United States to close the gap or to become a state that would be properly compared to the United States on the global stage as a superpower. But I think we can summarize all of that data and all of that analysis by uh by the conclusion that basically what it does is all this analysis and data is it, is they invalidate an easy facile comparison between the rise of china vis-a-vis the united states today and the rise of past challenging states in previous eras so people like to look at china and think well wow, that's just like the rise of The United States itself, uh, when Britain was the top dog, or it's just like the rise of Germany vis-a-vis Britain, or it's just like the rise of the Soviet Union vis-a-vis the United States. But there's a couple of really, really huge differences with the rise of China. And uh, just two, I think, of the most important differences are, number one, China still is, compared to those past rising states, China, despite its huge accomplishments, China remains technologically much further behind the United States. Then those other rising powers were behind the leading states of their day. I mean, Germany was in many ways ahead technologically of Great Britain when it was rising. The Soviet Union, people like to poo-poo it today, but back in the 1950s and 60s, it was matching or even exceeding the United States on some key technological and militarily relevant technological uh, dimensions. China is much, much farther behind the United States today than those states were in their day. But the second thing is even more important, the second thing that distinguishes China's rise from these other uh, analogies people like to refer to, and that is that it's just harder to compete today than it was in those days. The technology, the organizational acumen that you need to act as a superpower is just intrinsically harder. In some sense, the bar has been raised. For creating the kind of capabilities the United States has uh, compared to the way it used to be in the middle of the 20th century. And if you put those two things together, China's relatively underdeveloped uh, technological status and the higher bar for achieving superpower status, you come to the conclusion that as impressive as China's rise is and as important as the changes its rise have wrought are – It is not now nor soon going to be in a position to sort of create the kind of capabilities that would either match those the United States has and uses to be a superpower or that would negate the U.S.'s capability to continue to act as a superpower. So these are really big tectonic shifts that I don't think many people in the sort of foreign policy commentariat world have properly appreciated.
1: Yeah, it's a very important argument, and I would encourage all the listeners to really digest that part of the book. I would tell them to uh, read your article in Foreign Affairs, but I, I would actually encourage them more to get more detail about it to go out and get your book because it's developed in, in more detail and really done effectively. It was, a, it was a joy to read. And another another part of that uh, that argument that really stood out to me as as a reader, as an informed, uh, interested reader, was how you raise issues about measuring the size and strength of the Chinese economy by raising issues about using GDP as a measure of economic power. And uh, that, I thought, was a really interesting section. I was wondering you could say a bit more about how to measure the the strength of economies in this increasingly globalized age.
0: Yeah, I guess, yeah, I, I guess my, my response would be, sort of read the Foreign Affairs article if you don't believe it read the book, or, look, or if you're really interested in it, read the book. Because the Foreign Affairs article that we wrote does try to capture some of these arguments, but there's absolutely no way in that context you can really get into it. And um, what we do in the in – the, uh, when we look at this key fixation that people have with a gross domestic product, the measure of the output of an economy, is we really try to probe the recent most exciting research from economics – on that, the 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 use of that uh, indicator, and we also try to look uh, hard at uh, China experts, so as people who are experts on the China economy who have the capacity to reach uh, Chinese sources to really monitor that economy closely. It really does emerge from this kind of literature that um, gross domestic product is is important; it, capture, it captures important things, but it's missing an awful lot, and it's particularly problematic when used to compare economies at very different levels of their development cycle, namely a, a, an emerging middle income country like China with a particular kind of political economy focused on a particular t- uh, model and a highly advanced, uh, advanced uh, wealthy country like the United States. We can get into the details, but the GDP number just doesn't capture a lot of crucial things. Just to name one example, you know, a lot of China's growth, just as US growth, by the way, was 100 years ago. A lot of it is is developed uh, generated by really severe depletion of the environment now, the problem is that's counted as uh, as GDP I mean if you if you if you take chemicals and you pour them into a field uh, all that output all of that environmental destruction is not counted as part of GDP and then once you try to clean up that uh, chemical dump that's also part of GDP now, of course both the United States and the China and China do things that are hurting their environment. It's just that the degree to which GDP is missing this is far greater for China right now because of the nature of its development model than it is for the United States. We could replicate that across the board in different categories and show how GDP is missing uh, the real size of the economy. The bunch of economists have really worked hard trying to measure really the, the, the wealth of an economy. And the problem with GDP is it's a flow, so it's an annual flow, and it can it's sort of like your income. It's measuring kind of what you earn each year without measuring how much you actually have in assets. So I could look at my neighbor, might be earning a lot more than me, but what if I have five times more actual assets invested? And this new measure of so-called inclusion, Wealth tries to capture that aspect and Mm -hmm. by that measure the United States dramatically uh, by many multiples uh, dominates China. Let me say just one final thing on this whole comparison issue and I I say it with some reservation but I can't resist noting it and that is that you know I kind of cut my teeth as an international relations scholar back in the at the end of the Cold War when the Soviet Union was seen as in a very very powerful state. And there were sort of gross aggregate indicators, people then usually looked at military spending, that they sort of used to sort of simplify the problem of measuring Soviet power. And clearly those measures were missing the kind of weak underpinnings of the gross output that the Soviet economy was uh, uh, attaining. And I wouldn't say that the analysis of China now is exactly analogous to the analysis of the late Soviet Union, But there's certainly a cautionary tale there for just looking at gross output numbers and not looking – sort of lifting up the rug and looking under beneath and seeing what's going on. And when you do that, it tends to attenuate the impression created
1: by just just citing GDP statistics. Yeah, I may be getting the details a little wrong, but didn't uh, Galbraith, the economist, write some book in the mid-'80s that the Soviet Union's economy, based on its numbers, was functioning quite well and would endure into the future? (laughs) He wrote – Something like that in a book, and it kind of missed the under, the the, the basic problems of the of the command well, yeah, economy. There were a lot
0: of books like that and, and claims like that. Uh, the East German economy in the nineteen nineties, according to official statistics, was measuring as being wealthy, uh, approaching, uh, you yeah. know, be- beating out middle income uh, European countries, and beginning to approach Great Britain. Um, You know, uh, the problem was that a gigantic amount of that output was waste. And essentially, you you can build a bazillion incredibly bad computers. The the (laughs) Germans had invested gigantic sums into sort of becoming the technological leaders of the Soviet Union's Warsaw Pact. But those things were hugely inefficient and wasteful. Similarly, a gigantic chunk of the infrastructure investment that we see in China today, which is hugely impressive, by the way, for an American. And you can't go to China and not say, dang, these are nice trains. These are beautiful airports. These are fabulous roads. But uh, recent studies have shown how just a gigantic amount of that infrastructure investment is wasted. And so it's counting as GDP. It looks really impressive, but at least some of it is in is, long term may end up being a liability on the Chinese economy. Sure, that's a good point.
1: And as you, as you advance through the book, you, you, you lay out this idea that the United States you know, should uh, more or less follow the strategy of deep engagement. And in Chapter 4, you bring up the idea for more as I see it is to get the readers into what deep engagement is and what deep engagement isn't. And you use this concept of the edge, the edge of deep engagement, and you raise some of the issues that possible objections to following a deep engagement strategy. And I was wondering if you could give the listeners perhaps a little better sense of what deep engagement is as a strategy and what it isn't as a strategy.
0: Deep engagement, at the core of it, it's this idea that we've got some really, really important parts of the world that are really, really important for U.S. security. We care about the fate of these regions and it would hurt us if these regions became highly destabilized. The two most important ones are East Asia and Europe, a secondary, uh, uh, a third and also important region is um, the Middle East. Of course, the United States cares about Latin America and puts a lot of effort into trying to maintain a good relationship and and keep geopolitical competitors out of Latin America. We care about uh, South Asia. We care about Africa. The regions I mentioned are the ones where uh, investments by the United States uh, have particularly good payoffs uh, in terms of uh, our, our big interests. So this grand strategy, the, the core of the idea is that, you know, we want to make some investments to keep those regions more secure than would be than they would be if we were to back off. So to give an example, we have a security uh, treaty with Japan, and that, you know, entails risks and costs for the United States. If we were to pull back from that security treaty, in in the view of the uh, logic of this grand strategy, uh, the region would become far less secure. Japan would almost certainly decide it had to ramp up its military capabilities. It would probably nuclearize. China and Korea and other countries would respond. And the likelihood is East Asia would plunge into a far less secure world, which would have very, very bad reverberations for a whole range of United States interests. So here I'm describing to you in the East Asian context What we consider the core of the grand strategy, by the way, has been constant since the very early Cold War. But that you have to ask yourself, does that that core, does that essence, that that key kind of strategic bet on remaining engaged engaged in these regions, does that demand constant expansion? Do we do we as, as part of this grand strategy, must we always expand it? So, for example, if a country comes along and says "We'd like to be an ally of yours, are we obligated to say yes under every circumstance in our argument in our in our view, those kinds of episodes raise this debate over where's the edge and where's the core and to my mind, the question to ask if 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 you're asked to add a new obligation to an existing strategy is what is it bringing to the united states interest is it uh, is it crucial to sustain the current commitments um or not, and uh, we're able to identify some examples to try to, examples to try to illustrate this point what, that, that that expanding the commitments to the existing roster of commitments is not always necessary to sustain the core. So, an example would be Ukraine. Ukraine would like to become a, a, a NATO ally, or at least uh, one uh, one element of its po- politics would like to become a NATO ally. You can debate whether the United States should do it or not. What Steve and I can say in our book pretty conclusively is that expanding the U.S. roster of security uh, commitments to Ukraine is not necessary to sustain the core of the grand strategy. It is an option. And we think uh, Americans should think very, very carefully before adding potentially expensive new commitments in an era in which, as I was talking about about 10 minutes ago, in an era in which the challenges from Actors like China and Russia are getting more intense. So that's just one example. Another very quickly would be, does the grand strategy that we followed all of these years, does the core of it demand that we push democratization very hard? Does it demand indeed intervention, military or otherwise, in order to try to expand the roster of democratic countries? And our answer is no, it doesn't. In fact, the grand strategy has often worked with the United States dealing with very, very unsavory leaders in the pursuit of those core interests that I mentioned. So again, it's not that I'm against spreading democracy. I think democracy is great. The question is, at what cost to the core missions of the grand strategy is any given mission of expanding uh, a democracy? And right now, I think it's quite clear that large-scale armed intervention on behalf of trying to spread the democratic ideal it's just not consistent with sustaining the core of the grand strategy, nor is it a sort of advisable course. So the United States, I think already has under Obama and should continue to emphasize this idea of the use of military force in pursuit of uh, sustaining or expanding democratic governance.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting point, And that's, it seems to get at a lot of the potential critiques of your argument uh, that deep engagement leads to you know, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan or it leads to costly interventions. And we'll see, you can certainly say more about that as we go through the interview. But I think you make a very important point when you describe how a lot of the declinist talk of the United States today is grounded in something called rising expectations about what the United States can do and should do as a nation in other words is the united states declining a declining power because it can't use its power to more or less reshape the map of the middle east in ways that fit its interests in afghanistan and iraq to make is the us declining because it didn't make iraq uh, a liberal democracy or you know make people in afghanistan or at least some people not throw acid in the face of women who go to school i i think that's an important point to ground a lot of the declineist arguments in this idea of rising expectation yeah i think yeah, I think it's safe to say that the, um, uh, there's been a,
0: a fairly uh, important gyration or, or uh, you know, a, a kind of cycle of perhaps hubris or overestimation of American power then followed by um, perhaps underestimation uh, 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 o- of American capabilities. So I think it's fair to say that at the turn of the millennium, as we finished up the 1990s with a decade of such seeming successes as the interventions in the Balkans, the interventions in Kosovo, the spread of uh, expansion of, of NATO, the um, um, uh, successful U.S. efforts to spread various aspects of globalization, the so-called Washington consensus, one so can go down a long list that by around 2000, people were basically starting to see the United States as this incredibly capable state, indeed. All the talking heads were saying, "Oh, unipolarity is not a strong enough term. We need, to, you know, the United States is really an empire, you know." And at that time, Brooks and I were watching this, saying, "This is ridiculous. This is terrible." I mean, people, they're they're going over. They're going overboard. They're losing it here. They're freaking some sort of. Yeah. And the result was indeed, I think, a period where it's fair to say that the United States leadership and elites radically overestimated their capabilities. It was that mood, that sense that you could go into complicated, uh, vexed uh, 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 countries, and with the judicious application of military capability, by the way, not enough to require anything like uh, the draft or, God forbid, a tax increase. With extant existing forces in being, that you could do an expeditionary war 8,000 miles away from the U.S. homeland in a troubled uh, 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 state, that had been under a dictatorship for generations, with deep divisions among sectarian communities. We could somehow go in there and transform it and create a beacon of democracy in the Middle East. You look back on those, 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 those beliefs, and they just seem completely insane. The only thing to ask is, uh, in a sense, of what other country would anyone ever expect that kind of capability? The fact that it was a pipe dream, the fact that the United States could not do it and has not succeeded in doing it does not tell you that the United States is weak. It tells you that people in the early 2000s radically overestimated
1: U.S. capabilities. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think the I think the American leaders at the time would have benefited from reading the ancient Greeks and their warnings about hubris and military overstretch and power. I think uh I've done interviews with other authors who really make the argument that some people in the administration literally thought going into Iraq would be a replay of the fall of the Berlin Wall and people would want freedom and they'd be all happy and, excuse me, get along. So I, I definitely, I think, yeah, raise an important point there. It's true that when we talk
0: about the United States' role in the world and we talk about this grand strategy of deep engagement, um, we, have to, we, should, we ought to be clear-eyed about the risks. Uh, There are a lot of risks, and we believe very, very uh, seriously dangerous risks of pulling back from the world. But there are also risks involved in the strategy the United States has been followed. And one of those is, in fact, hubris. One of those is, in fact, the idea that the United States is indispensable for every single question in the world, that we ought to be leading everything, that in no region of the globe where there's a crisis can the United States safely stand aside and see if local actors can handle it. And We believe that that does require um, prudence, and it does require restraint. That the grand strategy does run this risk of of of, of hubris, of overcommitment, of, of of an inflated sense of obligation to serve interests that are that are not central to the United States. And so, we do think that 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 we have to be cognizant of it. And I don't want to get partisan here because I'm really actually not. I'm a I'm a registered a non-affiliated voter. Uh, but i will say that uh, i've uh, stood from the the halls of academia here watching the debate over president uh, obama and i can say that at times uh you can identify things that clearly seem to be mistaken but overall this 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 constant refrain that he hasn't led enough he hasn't gotten out in front of issues is hard for me to understand given how much trouble that very same sentiment has gotten this country in so very recently so i have Even as I'm a strong supporter, and I believe the scholarship strongly backs a globally engaged uh, role for the United States, I think that needs to be coupled with a kind of circumspection concerning new and expensive commitments that we've seen in recent years in Washington. And I think that should basically uh, remain a lodestar of U.S. foreign policy.
1: Yeah, my dad, I uh, don't want to get too far down the rabbit's hole, but he's a big Trump supporter, hates Obama. And I've heard him in the same conversation say, why doesn't Obama use the troops more to get rid of these terrorists in Iraq? And then in the same breath, he'll say, we in the United States shouldn't be fighting foreign wars for other people. <laughs> he'll, make the, he'll make that argument in the same stretch. So he, he doesn't like square his uh, logic in terms of critiquing Obama. He's either He critiques him for both not doing enough and potentially doing too much. So it's quite... It's quite an amazing argument to make but I, I think you're I think you're right about uh, the, the the soundness of a lot of Obama's moves in that regard but getting back to your book it's when you develop chapters five and six you as far as the deep engagement strategy you look at the security benefits of deep engagement for the United States from a theoretical and then I would call it and you can correct me if I'm wrong, an in-practice type of, of analysis. And I was wondering to you say a little bit more about what the United States gets from a security perspective by engaging in a, a deep engagement strategy.
0: Well, it's essentially an attempt to tr- – the uh, strategy is an attempt to make the world more secure for the United States and its interests. And the idea here is the big innovation, of course, it doesn't seem like an innovation because almost everybody who – listeners to this podcast will have been born after this innovation uh, first came into fruition the innovation is the idea that well if you pre if you if you the reason we call the strategy deep engagement this innovation is if you uh, are willing to offer some security guarantees to some key partners that will make the world and the particular regions you're involved in more secure in a way that will reduce long-term threats to core us national security interests at the same time as uh uh they generate these various other benefits that we discussed later in the book so when you look purely at the security commitments the idea is simply that um helping other countries with their security making some commitments to help them defend themselves will prevent various regions from either becoming Inter, uh, uh, seats of internecine conflict, as I suggested, could happen between, let us say, Japan and China if the, uh, if the United States weren't there, or from becoming um, uh, ripe targets for external powers to aggrandize themselves at the expense of the United States and ultimately constitute threats to the United States. So, there the example, of course, is the containment of Soviet power in Europe after the Second World War. So, the, both things work. In other words, you're You're making the security commitment to try to reduce the insecurity of people within the region so that, say, uh, back in the 1950s, France didn't once again fall into a rivalry against Germany. And you're at the same time trying to keep that region uh, relatively immune from external predatory uh, uh, moves by outside powers in the Cold War case the Soviet Union. And so by making them more secure, you're overall making uh, the region more secure and therefore reducing the probability that bad things are going to come out of that region and hit the United States. And one of the most important of those bad things that come come out of the uh, the region and hit the United States is this idea of nuclear proliferation. Every United States administration uh, since Truman has essentially had an attitude of trying to limit nuclear proliferation except to very, very close allies. Um, overall, wanting to have fewer states uh, in possession of nuclear weapons than more. And the bottom line is here, after all of these years, uh, 65, 70 years of working on this issue, way fewer states now have nuclear weapons than everybody expected. The technical capacity is there. Now, I think if you were to survey all of the scholarship, if you really had a lot of time on your hands, because believe me, it takes a lot of time. If you were to survey all the scholarship and, and really come to a consensus answer, what's the number one reason why more states don't have nuclear weapons? I think the number one reason almost certainly is this grand strategy that the United States has followed. By providing some states with security, it reduces their demand for nuclear weapons this would be the example that i gave you of japan or south korea taiwan many such countries at the same time those that forward and gain strategy gives the united states a lot of tools to disincentivize states from obtaining nuclear weapons that is to say coercive tools or sanctions that it can develop through developing and building up posses of like-minded states there is no way the US could have pursued this counterproliferation strategy if it didn't have the grand strategy of deep engagement. So, that's an example of where these security commitments are the fulcrum or the, or, the, or the basis of strategies meant to intervene in the world in ways or, 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 or actively engage with the world in ways to reduce long term threats to US security. We think, Steve and I, that the American uh, foreign policy establishment is in fact right on one issue, and that is that having a lot more states with nuclear weapons, especially weak states or states that are in intense routes with others, is a bad thing for US security interests. Not only might those things get used, but the more states that have them, the more opportunities there are for non-state actors to get their hands on nuclear weapons. So those are just, uh, uh, that's a a couple of examples of uh, how we walk through the security benefits
1: of this deep engagement grant strategy. Yeah, it's very effectively done. And and the statement that uh, stood out to me, I, I come from a diplomatic historian background, uh, just for, for your information, was when you wrote uh, that realism supports deep engagement. You take on a lot of realist thought that talks about the benefits of retrenchment. And to write that realism supports deep engagement, I think is quite interesting. When you take on concepts like entrapment and soft balancing, we don't need necessarily go into the details of that. But I mean, at the end of the day, I really thought it was an interesting part of the the book about how the United States has taken a lot of precautions to make sure that it doesn't get entrapped, as a lot of theory might suggest.
0: Yeah, and this, uh, what was quite fascinating was to see this issue come to the fore in the uh, Republican primary in the early part of this campaign when Donald Trump raised this issue of entrapment, which he's, he's worried, and I think it's a legitimate point that um, we make these commitments to allies and what if they then drag us into conflicts that really aren't directly connected to U.S. interests. What happens if we uh, secure an ally and then the ally says, hey, I've got Uncle Sam behind me, why don't I now get more aggressive with my neighbor since I've got the backing of Uncle Sam, why don't I get more aggressive with my neighbor and try to kind of, uh, you know, stir up some trouble here, make some gains for myself, perhaps security gains, perhaps political gains, and suddenly Uh Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I've I've made my neighbor mad, and now I'm going to call in my chit and ask uh, Americans to come and defend me. So that's a legitimate concern. When you are uh, providing security alliances, you better be darn sure that that entrapment issue doesn't get you down the road. But what we find, again, through a a comprehensive survey of academic research – is that uh, these entrapment fears are really uh, not very well grounded in historical experience for the simple reason that American leaders aren't as stupid as you think they are. I mean, basically, we (laughs) we can denounce them all the time. And yeah, they they do stupid stuff sometimes. But here, they're very, 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 very careful to write into these treaties protections against exactly that issue. And the fact of the matter is, the reason we say realism, the the school of political realism, supports this is because basically – Realism, as a way of thinking about international relations, tends to say strong states kind of get what they want usually and weak states kind of have to deal with it. Well, the fact is, in all of these alliances, the United States is the strong state and the ally is the weak state. And basically, uh, the United States takes careful actions to ensure that it's not dragged in. Um, And in fact, uh, the best evidence is for the, the contrary to be true. If you look at the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Look, you can poo-poo the contribution of our allies, but the fact is they did contribute a hell of a lot. And actually on a per capita basis or, or controlled for the size of their economy, some of them contributed more than we did. Uh, so that's a memo to Donald Trump. Uh, and they did so mainly <laughs> because they were trying to make the United States happy. There's a lot of these countries, Canada, you know, Estonia, Poland, they didn't have a big stake in Afghanistan. They went in there because they're trying to prove that they're good allies to the United States. So, overall, I think the entrapment issue that Trump raised and some critics of American grand strategy raised, I think that's a legit issue, it's an important issue, but we just don't find a hell of a lot of evidence uh, that the United States has somehow dropped the ball or failed to be attentive to that issue.
1: Yeah, it's an important point, and it's, what, it's an effective part of the book. And uh, several of the chapters, beyond dealing with the issue of security, deal with the economic costs and benefits of having this, this grand strategy. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the issue that a deep uh, engagement strategy would simply just cost too much money and ruin the American economy. Well,
0: there's again, very, very little evidence for that. There's no question that a globally engaged grand strategy is going to cost somewhat more than a strategy that pulls back to the U.S. homeland. But uh, Trump and other critics uh, over uh, they exaggerate the degree to which the deep engagement strategy is expense is 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 too costly. That is to say that they exaggerate the delta or the difference between the cost of a pullback strategy and the cost of deep engagements. There is a difference, but it's not that huge because the U.S. is going to want to maintain, according to them, uh, some pretty strong capabilities. Just want to deploy them here in the United States and deploying stuff abroad is a little is more expensive than at home but not as much as uh, more expensive as you might think because we get various subsidies from the allies for that purpose but they also exaggerate the degree to which uh, military spending at the level the United States uh, does is damaging to the economy there's just no evidence uh, for that spending at the sub five sub four percent of GDP level that's gonna hurt your long-term economic performance. if you survey the, the academic research, uh, you just can't find up with any – come up with any results that's, that substanti- – with many results to substantiate that point. The consensus view is you've kind of got to ramp up to much higher levels than the United States is doing um, before you can uh, really start to worry that defense spending is harming the economy writ large. And finally, uh, all of those arguments fail to calculate in the balance sheet the economic benefits of the strategy. Now, I wouldn't oversell these benefits, but there are benefits. The United States simply gains, by virtue of maintaining this grand strategy, leverage or influence for managing global economic questions that it wouldn't have otherwise. It is partly uh, the kind of capability that we talked about uh, earlier, the kind of power that we talked about earlier, which is the United States – has this posse of allies it can call upon if needed to try to defend uh, its preferred positions on global economic questions. But it's also the case that if the U S pulled back and that led to a lot of insecurity, a lot of increased rivalry, possibly even wars, that all will be extremely bad for the global economy. And since the U S is the biggest player in the global economy, things that are really bad for the global economy are also bad for the United States. So if you tabulate, attempt to do as best you can, a full reckoning of the modest but real economic cost of the strategy and the modest but real economic gains of the strategy that basically takes a lot of the air out of that whole economic critique of the of the strategy that is so favored of its critics.
1: Yeah, you also make the important point that a lot of America's economic problems are not exactly related to having a sort of a global hedge no, nah, maybe that's not the right word, but it's global preponderance of position that, it, that a lot of the problems deal with. I don't know, maybe domestic's not the right term, but they have little to do with uh, the problem of deep engagement, that they're related to other problems that similar rich countries would have. So I think that's an, an interesting point uh, that readers, or excuse me, listeners would benefit yeah, from reading about. Sure. Listening to. Yes,
0: we often yes. imagine that if we could cut defense spending, we would take this, the money freed up and that uh, money that would be freed up from defense spending would be used for optimal purposes that whatever the reader or listener wants. So if the listeners are on the more liberal side of the spectrum, they imagine defense spending being freed up and used – uh, to support uh, social welfare programs, to buttress uh, things this country does to help uh, less fortunate Americans or be used for infrastructure. On the other side of the equation, on the right hand of the spectrum, people imagine the freed up money from defense spending being handed back to the people in terms of, um, in terms of um, uh, uh, reduced taxes or being used to pay down debt. There is no guarantee that either of those uses – it would, in fact, happen. We could end up uh, squandering this money on who knows what. In other words, you can't assume a perfectly efficient polity, and a lot of the deep, long-run problems, I think if you consult most economists, and they ask, like, what's in the way of the U.S. kind of getting back on that rapid growth track that it used to be on back in the 1950s and 1960s, in the middle of the last century, I don't think... This 50 or 60 billion a year on defense that people are talking about would be would, would be cited as, as, the reason, as the reason for that. The reasons are far more complicated. So as you say, the deep causes of the economic malaise uh, in parts of the country, of the dissatisfaction or sense of disenfranchisement that you see in swaths of the country, I don't think that those are actually connected to the grand strategy. I think they're much more closely connected to choices made here at how we allocate our
1: resources here at home. Yeah, it's an important point. And when I read the book, especially the the latter chapters, I had a flashback to maybe a couple years ago, a student in class near the end of the class said, you know, why, why do we need to participate in the United Nations? Why do we need NATO? Why do we need all these international institutions? Don't they just keep us down? Don't they, you know, why do we need to, you know, shouldn't we be more unilateral? I think he said something like that. And One of the things that comes through, at least from my reading of your book, is all the benefits and potential exercise of power that the United States exercises by engaging these international institutions, however you define them, whether it be from NATO to the IMF, uh, that it is a form of legitimacy and power.
0: It is, and it also, once again, returns to our our refrain here in this conversation about blocking power or power to prevent worse things from happening or power that occurs under the scene. If you look at the United Nations, for example, boy, it sure often seems like, man, that United Nations, what a bunch of pikers. They're constantly beefing about the United States. They're constantly passing resolutions that we don't like and blah, blah, blah. And there's a certain truth to that. But what you don't realize is that underneath the surface, the United States has really powerful influence throughout the U.N. And in the one hand, it can prevent, it can help stymie that international body from doing things that would really undermine the United States' legitimacy. But also can occasionally deploy that body in ways that are very, very useful to the United States. Just to give one example, uh, again, under the radar but really important is you know, trying to go after terrorists and terrorist financing and trying to get countries to pass legislation that makes it easier f- for us to track where they're getting their money and to track transporter flows of funds that go to terrorist organizations. After 9-11, there was a lot of sympathy for the United States, appropriately so, and we were able to push through UN uh, top uh, bodies, including the Security Council, a raft of new international legal obligations, by the way, are legally binding on all members of the UN regarding Uh, terrorist finance regarding reporting on terrorist activities, regarding uh, these kinds of uh, information-gathering activities that are crucial for the United States' counterterror effort. No one involved in that program would disagree with the claim that if we start becoming more standoffish with respect to these international institutions, if we start bashing them too much, or indeed, in the extreme case, pull out of them, our counterterror efforts would really, really suffer.
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting point, and... I think it raises the issue, if you if you read the book, there are all sorts of benefits from deep engagement. And you can, I mean, like any book, you're going to raise arguments. People are going to read it and say, I don't agree with this. I mean, it's like any, any book, a good book that makes you think about important issues. But I think you raise an, an issue that deserves some attention for our listeners, is at the end of the day, with all this scholarship and a lot of evidence calling into question The basic assumptions of retrenchment, and we kind of talked about this at the beginning, but why retrenchment seems to appeal to so many people? With all the ways that the world works in the United States' interests, even after disastrous wars, especially in Iraq, why we would want to give that up? Why why do so many people, even if you present them with this body of evidence, will nonetheless gravitate toward a strict retrenchment policy?
0: Well, I think well, I think the biggest answers there are are two words: Iraq and Afghanistan. Even though we think that certainly the the democracy promotion, you know, certainly the, the, the kind of the the, the the invasion of Iraq and the hugely ambitious uh, program that the Bush administration attempted in Iraq, are not in any sense uh, necessary necessary for the deep engagement mission, deep engagement strategy. I think that's the frustration of those two wars, the exhaustion. I think the terrible human toll they've taken on American uh, service members, their families, the economic costs have just basically led to a sense of fatigue, Uh, you know, Iraq syndrome, people call it. And I think that's a, I think it's a terrible decision. It's one of the worst foreign policy decisions this country has ever made. Um, And and it's not surprising that it has led to a frustration with the overall uh, strategy. I actually think if you probe deeper, into American views and American opinions, you'll find that the support for pulling back is less than it seems. Because often it's easy for a respondent to a poll, say, yeah, I'm frustrated. I think we should do this or that. But the core of the strategy of retrenchment, the core of it is to get rid of allies. The core of it is to basically say, allies, you're on your own. Europe, you're on your own. We don't want NATO. We don't want the Japan alliance. We don't want to be allied to South Korea anymore. We're ditching these alliances. We're going to go it alone. We're going to go America first in Don, Donald Trump's uh, argument. And basically, I think if you start asking most Americans, do you prefer a world in which we don't have allies? I think most of them don't like that. I think most of them want to have allies. I think they, don't, they don't want America to be alone. And they value these connections. And so I think that partly it's the fact is that. The strategy we have is this: is the devil we know. We know it, and we are easy to complain yeah. and beef about it, whereas this other grand strategy is the one we don't know, and it can sometimes seem wonderful and beautiful. But I think the more they really examine that alternative strategy and think about what it would mean for them, I think that they'll all of a sudden see the virtues of what we're doing.
1: Yeah, you make an effective case that deep engagement is really a necessary approach to deal effectively with things like terrorism, the problem of nuclear proliferation would get worse, and that would certainly be bad. Um, You have good sections about, you take on some of the assumptions of retrenchment, and by extension, realist theorists, who either don't pay attention to economic issues that much, or tend to emphasize the the way that markets will correct themselves pretty easily. I mean, at the end of the day, in this globalized world, you know, would a war in Asia not affect the United States. I mean, that's are eventually not affect over the long term. Not affect the United States that much. That seems like a questionable assumption. I mean, I, I guess when, when when I read this book, were you did you know about a lot of these arguments, or did it surprise you the way that some uh, the the scholarship that you read seemed to discount these seemingly major events or possibilities? I'm
0: aware of this. I mean, this this argument about retrenchment or pulling back has long been popular in. Uh, certain academic circles. And indeed, uh, I think it, it's fair to say some sort of strategy broadly belonging to that category of restraint, pulling back, retrenchment, whatever you want, offshore balancing, whatever you want to call it, was for at least a time, and maybe still is, the, the most popular strategy among uh, a, a, a contingent of, of uh, experts that we would call security scholars or international scholars of international security and um and so i've been i've been grappling with these arguments for for, for really uh, decades and and the argument really picked up after the end of the cold war uh the argument really began to gain strength it's like why are we still involved in the world we we created this grand strategy of deep engagement to deal with the soviet union Soviet union's gone why don't we come home so these arguments uh have been out there including the ones about the, the possibility that the united states would not suffer terribly much from increased insecurity abroad, and wouldn't suffer economically. So, for example, one of the best articles written on that by two wonderful scholars named Eugene Colt's and Daryl Press, Press, I should say, is my colleague here at Dartmouth, was uh, (laughs) arguing that, you know, "Ah, a war in Asia would be no problem. That article was written in 2001. So this scholarship has been out there for a while. What has changed in recent years is how much those views have begun to enter the policy mainstream. Enter mm-hmm. the public consciousness. It's always been a popular strategy among academics, security scholars. Uh, it's now becoming a, a policy that occasionally seems an attractive thing
1: to people outside of that world. Yeah, I think I think you're right, and it, it seems to make sense to a lot of people. Um, it's not an exact analogy, but when I read this book, I remembered uh, right when I was coming out of my undergraduate days. Was around the time I grew up in Minnesota when the Minnesota elected Jesse Ventura. yeah, And the arguments that my dad voted for him and others, and they kept saying that we need change. It doesn't necessarily, and I'd be like, well, what does change mean with Jesse Ventura? And they were like, well, I don't know, but it's got to be better than what's going on now with these idiots in the, in, the, in the White House, or not the White House, but the Minnesota State Capitol. And it garnered, it began to come more mainstream and he eventually got elected, but it took about, not well, I don't want to have a strict time frame, but it didn't take very long before people were like, "What the hell have we done?" <laughs> he became he left a very unpopular governor and did a lot of things that angered people and I don't think it's an exact analogy to maybe what you're doing in your book, but it seems to me that a lot of people there is a lot of explanatory power in this idea that retrenchment is not the status quo. Something's got to be better than the status quo let's give it let's give it a try I think I think you're on to something there when you, may, when you advance that argument.
0: I totally, I totally agree. It's, it's, a, it's a thing we grapple with throughout the book. It's the status – I mean the strategy, although we think it's been overdone. We think there's been mistakes. We think some presidents have taken this thing way too far. But the core of the strategy is the status quo, and the status quo is upsetting to people. I mean we see lots of bad stuff happening. And ISIS and attacks and god-awful attacks in Europe, refugee flows, Syria falling apart – in one way, it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. You intervene in Libya, yeah. it goes south. You don't intervene in Syria, it goes south. And that's why often the critics, the criti- referring back to your conversation with your father, the critics of Obama often seem unfair. You, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. It's yeah. so damn frustrating. it <laughs> nice to think of some really radical policy change. Um, And that's, 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 you know, at a rhetorical front, that's what you, 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 you confront in this kind of debate. And our book, in a sense, is really trying to be very, very serious about asking the question, what would the counterfactual look like? What would the world look like if we followed a different strategy? You need to think long and hard about that. We've tried to simplify the task for readers in this book by doing all the grunt work of asking what does scholarship, what do theories, models, evidence, what does the best scientific thinking tell us? that counterfactual world will look like. And the bottom line is the counterfactual world would be a lot worse for the United States if we didn't do this stuff. But they can't expect that necessarily to resonate with everybody who's just mm-hmm. occasionally glancing at the newspaper, or watching the news and seeing lots of bad stuff.
1: Yes, I agree. And, and William, I can't thank you enough. I've taken a lot of your time and asked you a lot of questions. I really appreciate your speaking with me. But I'm going to have to pick your brain at least one last time here. And perhaps it's an unfair question, but it it seems to me that if you could put on the policy cap for a second and just if you're speaking to, say, Trump, if he gets elected or Hillary Clinton, if she gets elected and you need you get like one minute in front of the president or something like maybe five. I don't know. And you could distill what you think are the most important things for him or her to take from your book and take about deep engagement, what would you, what would you tell them? I think, it
0: would, I think it would be to look hard and examine the fundamental core of American grand strategy that has worked so well for 70 years, making this country and indeed large swaths of the world more secure and prosperous than ever. Look at that core. Ask yourself what it is. And when you undertake any foreign policy obligation beyond that core, ask yourself, Do I risk the core of this grand strategy by undertaking this new obligation? Am I doing anything that is putting uh, at risk the, 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 the basic principles that have served the United States so well for so long? Examine each new obligation with that core in your mind, and you can't go too far
1: wrong in foreign policy of the United States. Excellent. Very good. And one more question, and then I'll let you go. I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit more your future plans and research and or teaching?
0: I have a lot of things underway. I want to just focus on one uh, project I'm working on with a wonderful scholar uh, from the London School of Economics, Vladislav Zubuk, who I'm known since the Cold War. Uh, we're working on a project. Where we're trying to understand what happened with Russia. So I also have a, one of my hats as I do analyze Russian foreign policy. What happened with Russia? We're trying to ask this question. To what degree is The more pugnacious Russian policy, in some sense, the fault of the West or the United States by somehow failing to integrate Russia into the into into some sort of larger community of nations. Did we blow it? Did we alienate them? Or is Russia's current course in international politics largely the result of developments internal to Russia? This is one of the biggest debates, right, in Mm -hmm. American foreign policy circles. And we're going to try to do an evidence based,
1: research based answer to that question. That sounds like a very needed and quite relevant project. I can't tell you how I can't tell you enough how interested I would be <laughs> in reading such a book. Well, we hope uh, there's a few more like you. Yeah, uh, my, my 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 specialty in U.S. foreign policy is U.S. foreign <laughs> policy, and I've written my publications on U.S. Uh, Russian Soviet relations. Wow. So, so anyways, uh, once again, William, thank you for speaking with me. I can't endorse this book enough to our listeners. Uh, beyond being a book that makes complex uh theory from the social sciences is accessible to general readers and it lays out a lot of arguments. I think it was very easy to follow. It's a book that I think general leaders can get. I think it would work well in certainly uh upper level classes for undergrads. Uh if I were teaching a graduate seminar in US foreign policy, this would definitely be one of the books I would use. So on that note, I think it's it's a fantastic book that deserves a wide readership.
0: Well thank you very much for both the interview and those kind words about the book.